people are convinced that our fellow human beings are not to be cared about. It's okay if the dolphins die. It's okay if the daffodils die. It's okay if all the bees are gone. It's okay if the birds are gone. Because I have my cell phone and I'm okay. And that's really spooky. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest fashion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I always say that nature is the ultimate biohack, and it most certainly is, but I'm also a big fan of technologies that harness the powers of nature and bring them into your home. So every morning for the past three years, I've been using a juve for about uh, 10 to 15 minutes every morning, sometimes even twice a day, and I've seen a huge boost in my testosterone levels. I have way less pain and inflammation, and my skin complexion at 49, currently at the time of this recording, has never been clearer. So natural light from a juve supercharges the mitochondria in your cells so your body can make more energy. It's got all sorts of health benefits and they're all backed up by thousands of peer-reviewed clinical studies. The testosterone increase specifically has been one of the biggest wins for me. I've got higher T levels now than I did in my early 40s, which is super cool. And Juve is the number one red light brand therapy for a reason. Their devices are super dope looking. They're sleek. They're super powerful. They're FDA cleared. They come in uh, modular configurations so you can kind of build them as you go. They have all sorts of different sizes. You can put them anywhere. Uh, They're just freaking amazing. And I'd also like to point out that newer research is also showing red light therapy is great for improving women's hormone health like thyroid regulation. So if you're a woman and you're hearing this like, I don't want more testosterone. No, you really do because this helps with cellulite. It helps with skin blemishes and absolutely helps to balance your hormones. So it's a win for all of the genders. It's freaking amazing. So I'd love for you guys to check it out. Get over to juve.com forward slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V.com slash Luke. Once you're over there at juve.com forward slash Luke, you're going to see a special bonus the Juve team is giving away to all of my listeners. So use the code Luke at checkout. One last time, that's juve.com forward slash Luke and use the code Luke at checkout. As someone who's been into herbs and supplements and whatnot for a long, long time, there's two things that I look for when putting something in my supplement cabinet or representing them on the show. One is, of course, that their products actually work. Like, I want to know that it's doing something beneficial for my health, my mind, etc. The next is... I need to know that they are a clean product and that they have full transparency. In other words, I want to know where the ingredients come from. I want to make sure there's no mold, pesticides, heavy metals, no funk in there. That's why I love our sponsor, Cured Nutrition. You can find them at curednutrition.com. They meet my very specific criteria. They've got two products that I really love. One of them calms you down to just chill, meditate, hang out, relax, sleep. It's called Zen Nighttime Blend. It's got reishi, ashwagandha, magnesium, and CBD. And then their other one wakes you up. It's called Rise Nootropic Blend. And it's a very unique combination of lion's mane, cordyceps, rhodiola, ginseng, and CBD. 
So that one's more for mental focus, clarity, sustained energy, etc. So we've got two great products here that really work. One kind of lifts you up, one chills you out with no swag stuff in the product. So it's all very clean. But additionally, they have some really creative stuff like canine dog treats and tinctures and salves and a THC free classic mint oil and all kinds of different herbal blends. So they have a full suite of products. They're really tasty. They work. They're awesome. I'm super stoked to share them with you. So you can find all of these goodies over at curednutrition.com. That's C-U-R-E-D, curednutrition.com. The code over there, because I know you want the code, is of course Lifestylist. And that code is going to save you 15% off. Again, that's curednutrition.com. You, my friend, are about to swallow a giant red pill in the form of episode 273 of the Lifestylist podcast, Solving the Wuhan 5G COVID-19 Mystery with Dr. Thomas Cowan. Make sure to share this important information with a friend once you've listened. Now, before I'd start, I'd like to express my most sincere condolences to anyone who's been negatively affected by this situation, whether it be illness, loss of life financial hardships, or even those of us that are just suffering from the loss of our former lifestyle and personal freedoms. If you want to check out a deeper dive into my personal point of view on the current virus events, tune into episode 270, where I spent about 90 minutes offering a spiritual perspective and solution to this hardship, as does our guest Tom at the end of this interview. Now a quick announcement regarding my speaking schedule. Now many of my live events have been postponed due to the current situation, as you might expect. In order to stay connected to the community here, I'll be doing two upcoming live stream events alongside my girlfriend, Allison Charles, wherein we will lead guided meditations and offer ways to stay spiritually centered during this challenging time. The first one's April 20th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. The next one, April 24th at 11.30 a.m. Pacific. Now you can register for these online events and the rest of my live events at lukestory.com forward slash events. That's lukestory.com forward slash events. Here's a bit about our awesome guest before we jump in. Tom graduated from Michigan State University College of Human Medicine in 1984. Quite an ironic number there, considering the current events. He's also the author of three books, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness, and Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. He's also the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing, And he's the co-author of the Nourishing Traditions book of Baby and Child Care. Now, I've been aware of Dr. Cowan's work and, by the way, his amazing Dr. Cowan's powders for some time, and I'd always hoped to get him on the show for an interview. It's one of those things that's kind of on my to-do list, and uh, in light of the current pandemic unfolding, many people began to send me videos of some talks that he did recently on the current pandemic, and that really pushed me to reach out to Tom, and thankfully, he agreed to do the show. Now, in this video and one other, which are, of course, linked in the show notes for this episode, he discusses correlations between Wuhan and other cities heavily polluted by 5G radiation and other environmental toxins and the relationship between the breakout of the COVID-19 virus. In preparation for this episode, when I'm putting together my ideas and show notes, etc., I did a web search for the links for these videos, and I was appalled by the sheer volume of links and articles at the top of the search results which sought to discredit and misrepresent what he actually said in the videos. For example, Newsweek, being one of the more dishonest news outlets that responded, 
with a very misleading story on the Cowan video uh, titled Their Story. YouTube video suggests 5G internet causes coronavirus and people are falling for it, which is ludicrous because the video has nothing to do with the internet. It has to do with the 5G or fifth generation uh, cell service that's rolling out across the world and that had most markedly rolled out in late 2019 in Wuhan, China. So, you know, accidental correlation there? We don't know. We're going to find out perhaps in this episode. Now, when there's a hard push to discredit someone who's merely asking questions and hypothesizing on the nature of a worldwide pandemic of very mysterious origins, you've got to wonder, why are they working so hard to silence someone's point of view? In other words, who stands to benefit from shutting down a simple conversation? If there's no truth to someone's hypothesis, why does it need to be eliminated and censored, especially if they're not offering any medical advice whatsoever or saying anything that could remotely harm anyone? Hmm, makes you think, doesn't it? Now, since I discovered his videos on the topic, many versions of them have actually been censored by YouTube, as have so many other legitimately thought-provoking videos like the David Icke appearances recently on the London Reel, which, by the way, you can find for free at londonreel.com. TV. It's also linked in the show notes. I highly recommend checking those videos out. Uh, I've been following Ike's work for many years, and it's fascinating and equally terrifying to see so many of his theories uh, from up to 30 years ago actually coming true in our current reality. And by the way, David Ike will soon be appearing on this show due to popular demand and my curiosity. So you can look forward to that. Now, as someone who makes a living from and has made a life mission of free speech, I am appalled by the current authoritarian censorship of anyone daring to question the official story of this pandemic. It's like, why can't we ask a question? It's craziness. This is exactly how fascist regimes throughout history have come to power, by silencing dissent and labeling anyone asking questions as a conspiracy theorist. By the way, I would say I'm a conspiracy analyst or researcher, not a theorist. I don't make up any theories. I just examine the ones that are out there. Anyway, it's incumbent upon us as free sentient beings to uphold the fundamental right to speak freely as we wish. So please, please push back against this censorship by sharing alternative points of view like this one and any others that you find with as many people as possible. There's power in numbers. And apart from legislation, this is really all we can do is just share information. Now, in the conversation you're about to hear, Dr. Thomas Cowan breaks down the nature of viruses in general and throughout history, how we test for them, treat them, how the testing is actually conducted, if it's efficient and accurate, the diagnosis of COVID-19, and the misleading and confusing narrative being presented to us by world government and the mainstream media. We also discuss how this virus compares with the flu and other illnesses in terms of statistics, death rates, etc. And finally, Tom breaks down the negative effects of EMF exposure and how they might be related to illness. How the aluminum in vaccines and the heavy metals in our environment can make our bodies more susceptible to EMFs. Now, despite some of the disturbing truths uncovered by Dr. Cowan, he does leave us with an air of hope and positivity in his uniquely spiritual way, which I very much appreciated. I think in times like this, awareness is key, but we must really avoid anxiety and paranoia uh, for many reasons, one of which being it weakens your immune system, uh, as a matter of fact. But uh, more than anything, there's very little power in fear, but there's much power in awareness and in gaining new perspectives in terms of the information that we're taking in. 
And in closing, I'd also like to add that no one knows exactly what's really going on with this pandemic, but I do believe we all need to keep asking the tough questions and to remain open-minded and receptive to ideas that fall out of the narrative that is force-fed to us by the mainstream media. And regardless of what's really going on with this virus, it's critical to remember the importance of remaining as resilient as possible by being mindful about the toxic modern lifestyle many people live. When the body's already burdened, it has a much harder time taking care of itself and fending off threats of various types. So personally, more than anything, I'm doing my best to remain calm, informed, positive, and know that in the end, all will be well. Humanity as a species, I believe, when aligned with right principles, will always prevail. Don't forget to share this episode with a friend. And with that, I'll invite you to jump down this deep rabbit hole with Dr. Thomas Cowan. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Tom. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me on your show. I guess it's an old-fashioned word. Well, it uh, is. I think of it as a show. It is. Yeah. You know, it's a, sometimes more like a variety show, uh, which might yeah. be the case today because we're going to be covering some uh, some uh, pretty serious ground. And uh, I want to thank you for making the time on such short notice to come on. And um, you know, I know you got a lot going on right now. And based on the uh, the viral nature of the recent video that was posted of you. I'm sure you're getting a lot of requests, so I feel honored to have your time. And it's really two birds with one stone for me because I've been wanting to interview you for a long time about a bunch of other stuff. So yeah. um, it was timely, and I'm glad that um, these unfortunate circumstances brought us together today. Well, it's good to meet you, Luke. Likewise, man. So uh, before we get into the nitty gritty here, just give the audience a little bit of background on who you are, your practice, what you do in the world, uh, and then we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, So I grew up in a uh, suburban Detroit, Uh, went to Oak Park High School in suburban Detroit. I was one of the better athletes in the school, I must say. I was on the uh, golf team and basketball, and et cetera. Then I uh, went to uh, Duke for three years. I uh, didn't like it. And just even though I sort of knew I, I quote, should be a doctor, I really didn't like it. <laughs> so I didn't want to have anything to do with it. So I decided to do anything but be a doctor. And I joined the Peace Corps to teach gardening in Southern Africa. And amazingly, and I think I may be the only person who can say this, while I was in living in a mud hut in a village in Africa, I met the work of Rudolf Steiner and Weston Price. Oh wow, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that is a very fortuitous um, a meeting there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I learned about biodynamics, and then I realized that the type of doctor I didn't want to be was not the only type of doctor there was, and that allowed me to then go to medical school and been basically searching for how to do medicine and have a have had a you know medical practice basically ever since. And your practice is in San Francisco. San is that Francisco. Right? Yeah. Got it. And then before I forget, because I have a feeling once we go down the various rabbit holes that I want to go down, this this could get skipped. Tell us about Dr. Cowan's powders, because I'm sure your early introduction to Rudolf Steiner and the biodynamic farming somehow had something to do with that. And I I think a lot of people that are familiar with your work might not even be aware of the connection between those really great products. And I think they're awesome and like to give you a chance to talk about them actually before I forget. Uh, It it really came out of the idea that 
you know, I, I've been involved with the Weston Price Foundation since its inception, and it's it's basically a foundation uh, to uh, resurrect traditional foods, you know, in the world in the United States and traditional farming methods, and including sort of modern takes on those, like biodynamics. And what I what I realized is that a traditional diet has essentially three parts. One is the animal part, one is the seed part, which is either grains or seeds, and the third is the uh, vegetable part. And when you look at those three, and then I ended up thinking, so we we have good ways of producing animal products these days, you know, grass-fed meat and wild fish, and it's not like it used to be, but it's close, and good seeds, and we can soak them, et cetera. Traditional people used to eat about 120 different vegetables or plants per year, at least most of them. And a lot of them were perennials and wild ones and things that basically nobody eats. So even the people who are dedicating themselves to eating a traditional diet, they don't do it with regard to vegetables. And so once I realized that you had to eat, you know, 120, 10 veg, different vegetables a year and 10 to 15 a day and half of them had to be wild or perennial, I decided that I had to grow them because there was no way to get them otherwise. And then I realized that I, I used to joke that if I told all my patients they had to eat 110 different vegetables and not, not a lot, just a little bit, that's the traditional way, uh, and, and 15 a day and they had to be wild and perennial, that I would be down to about two patients after a while. <laughs> right, so exactly. I decided that w- we could actually grow them and then put them into powders and essentially provide the diversity of vegetables and vegetables that people can't get otherwise. This That's- is like the little medicinal part of the diet. It's not for building bodies or you know growing strong bones. It's basically the medicinal part of the diet. Well, I'm very grateful that you've elected to do that because I'm someone that doesn't like to chew my way through a lot of roughage. And uh, I understand the polyphenols and antioxidants and different minerals and the nutritional profile of some vegetables, of course, are better than others. But, uh, you know, to get them in is really tough. (laughs) And that's like always been kind of a missing link. And I I would say I follow (laughs) loosely an ancestral diet, but it's always been a little. Uh, difficult for me to get that in and get in the sea vegetables and things like right. that. And I'm, I'm not particularly fond of or skilled at cooking and that makes it all the more difficult. Yeah. So I love the fact that you created those things. So I just want to give you kudos for that and make sure I mentioned it uh, before we get into the deep water here. Let me just start here because I, I was thinking about you know, how, I'm gonna, how we're going to do this. And let's just say, first of all, that I'm no stranger to controversy, right? I mean... You know, I wrote a number of different books so far. There's been five total. And the first of this last series, which was called Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, was the basic point of the book, the first point anyways, was was I questioned the idea that the heart pumps the blood. Now, of course, everybody knows the heart pumps the blood around the body. That's like something we learn in third grade. And Frankly, I attempted to demonstrate in that book that that's frankly nonsense and that there's a whole different way the blood moves and that changes everything. And I want to read uh, something I wrote from a quote from one of my heroes to get us started here. 
cool. if I could. Yeah. His name is Victor Schauberger. And nice, dude. You know all the good ones. I know he's all great. the good ones. He's, he's one great. of my heroes. And I would say he's somebody who knows more about water than probably anybody else who ever lived. So here's what Schauberger said, which I put in the front of this book about the heart is not a pump. So he said, and I quote, people may say I am crazy. Perhaps they are right. In this case, it's not so much important if there is one fool more or less in the world. But in case that I am right and science is wrong, Lord have mercy on mankind. And so what I'm about to say, I I don't know if I would use the word science like he does, uh, but uh, a lot of people will think possibly that I'm crazy or that I'm wrong, in which case, so be it. Uh, But I would try to make the case that I'm not wrong. And we'll see where that goes. If that's okay with you. That sounds great. Any show that starts with... uh... Rudolf Steiner and uh, Schauberger. I'm I'm already on board, <laughs> and I'm I'm also an absolute. We could have a whole other show about this, and hopefully we will. But I'm an absolute water fanatic. I'm obsessed with spring water and structured water, and so this story has a lot to do and... with structured water. All right, cool. Let's do this. But that comes at the end. And the first okay. the first thing I would say is. Because I made this this very controversial comment that viruses don't cause disease. Um, and, and unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have time to flesh that out. But I, I think it would be good if I did. And to actually start with this very simple question of how do we know, given a new disease, if it's caused by a virus, right? I mean, that's the basic question. You could also expand the question and say, how do we know if a certain set of symptoms is caused by a microbe, in other words, an infection? And there we're talking not just about viruses, but bacteria and fungus and maybe amoebas and other things. So it turns out, you know, like most things in life, there's rules to this game, right? We all, every, everything goes by rules. And there's rules that have been established for approximately 100 years on how you demonstrate with a new set of symptoms that it's caused by a microorganism. And they're basically called Koch's postulates. And I would say there's no doctor, there's no microbiologist, there's no infectious disease person, at least that I know of, who disagrees with Koch's postulates. There's some things to say to qualify that, but basically that's that everybody agrees that that is the way scientists investigate a disease and find out if it's infectious etiology, right? You with me? Absolutely. So uh, let's take an example of a very simple one called meningococcal meningitis. Meningococcal meningitis is a bacteria. And basically everybody who has meningococcal meningitis has the identical symptoms. They have a very high fever. They're really sick, like sick like you've never seen. They have a very characteristic fever, temperature, and generally speaking, they'll die in two to three days if nothing is done. And by nothing, I mean intravenous antibiotics. So that's the clinical scenario. So that's Koch's postulate number one, is you have to have a defined clinical scenario. In other words, everybody has the same symptoms. Now, when you investigate people with meningococcal meningitis, 
100% of them, if you take their blood and culture it, meaning you try to grow it, they will grow out millions of copies of meningococcal bacteria on the Petri dish, 100%. There is nobody with that, that set of symptoms who has meningococcus who doesn't grow out meningococcus in their blood. That's Koch's postulate number two. You have to find it with everybody, not 20%, not 80%, 100% of the people have it. The postulate number three is nobody walking around like you or me or your friend or anybody who doesn't feel, you know, is not sick. None of those people have meningococcus growing in their blood. None of them. There's nobody walking around with millions of copies of meningococcus in their blood. So that's number three. Number because, four, because inherently they would be showing symptoms. You can't, it's not compatible with, with being normal to have okay. meningococcus okay. in your blood. Got it. Right? It doesn't happen. Never. Yeah. Now, the next thing is you can take the blood, you can purify the bacteria so that all you have left is the bacteria. And you could inject it into another person, which obviously you wouldn't want to do. But you could find an animal model, in other words, an animal that's susceptible, and you introduce it into that animal either through injection or through their nose or something. And 100% of them will get sick. And then those people will, you can culture out meningococcus from their blood, and then you could keep the thing going. Right? Got it. Got it? Yeah, that's sounds, how sounds pretty foolproof so far. It's very clear, foolproof. That's how we do it. Now, you can also apply that to viruses. So let's take chickenpox as an example. More or less, everybody who has chickenpox, every child has a certain kind of fever. You know, it fluctuates a little bit, but they have a fever. They don't feel that good. They have this vesicular or bubbly rash. And then if you examine their blood or the, the, the stuff that comes out of their vesicles, their blisters, they all have millions of copies of this chickenpox virus, 100%. There's nobody with chickenpox who doesn't have chickenpox in their blood and in their, their rash you know, secretions. And like number three in, in the meningococcus, nobody like you or I walking around without chickenpox has chickenpox viruses by the millions in their blood. It just doesn't happen. It's not compatible with having a virus, right? Got it. And then if you take that millions of copies and expose another person to it, they who hasn't had chickenpox, they will get chickenpox and they'll have a million copies, etc. Now, I hopefully more I'll have more to say of why even though that seems clear, that doesn't necessarily mean they have an infection. But that's advanced virology, and I just want to ignore that for a minute. But I do want to get back to that. Because for our purposes, for literally years, decades, that's how microbiologists, virologists, decided that an infection or, or a set of symptoms was caused by an infection. Right? We got it? Yep. And maybe I should apologize for being sort of science wonky here, but I think this is crucial to people understanding even your question about 5G. 
I think you're laying a great foundation and it's it's fundamental to the conversation that's about to ensue. And I'm I'm learning right now because I know nothing about viruses. I know from right. my knowledge of viruses has to do with, yeah, I had chicken box when I was a kid. I had it, then it went away. I never got it again. And having been a bit of a biohacker over the years, I've done a lot of blood work and have done viral specific blood work and have found remnants or uh, indications that I've had various viruses, uh, strains of Epstein-Barr, whatever it might have been, I don't even remember, uh, and panicked and then talked to my functional medicine doctor. And they go, oh no, that doesn't mean that you have it. That just means that it's been there at some point or something like yes. that. So my knowledge base of viruses ends there, which is you know, okay. obviously Good. leaving a lot, of, a lot on the table. Okay. So with that background, now we come to our current situation. So so here's what happens then. There's people who are identified who are sick in this, in this city in China, right? Called Wuhan. So they say they're sick. Now, what are the symptoms that they have? Basically, they have a fever and a low-grade fever and a dry cough. Now, unlike meningococcus, unlike chickenpox, that those two symptoms, which are the defining symptoms of this coronavirus disease, are not specific to anything, right? You could have the flu, you could have coronavirus, you could have asthma and air pollution. Apparently, Wuhan is the most polluted air pollution place practically in the world, I hear. Uh, There's a lot of things that cause people, you've probably had fever and a dry cough at some point in your life. We all have. So my first point is that doesn't really help us, right? That doesn't fulfill Koch's postulates that there's a specific set of symptoms. But let's say, okay, they have a fever and a dry cough, and we want to know if there's a new virus causing. So if we were honest about this, in other words, if the Chinese people, government or whatever, whoever's in charge there says, we think we've identified a new disease, what you would do is you take 500 people with that set, that set of symptoms, right? Just like 500 people with meningococcus. You examine their blood for under electron microscopy or their secretions. It could be their respiratory sputum. And in every case, you would find these hundreds of thousands, millions of copies of the virus. That's how we do it. And then you would examine 500 people who are normal, but living in Wuhan, and they don't have a cough and they don't have a fever. You examine their blood and their respiratory secretions, and not one of them would have this virus in it. That's exactly the same way. And then you would take the virus from the people who are sick, and you would purify it. So there's nothing else in there. There's not, you know snot and there's not whatever else might be in there. And you would give that to an animal and they would get characteristic symptoms. That's how, that's how it's done. Now, the question is, is that how it was done this time? And it's not shocking to me because I've been part, I've been down this rodeo uh, probably 10 times, but as far as I know, and I could I could be wrong. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an immunologist. I I look on, I have sources who give me information. I research this myself. As far as I can tell, there is not one person who has had this electron microscope study done 
to demonstrate millions of viruses, no other virus or bacteria or any toxin at all. There's never been 500 people or even one person who is examined under electron microscope with the same set of symptoms who doesn't have the virus. And then they never purified it. And then he couldn't demonstrate that they could make an animal sick. Now, let's think about that for a minute, because, again, I could be wrong. There could be a study. I looked on PubMed just today. As far as I know, that never happened. Now, you could ask me, so, Tom, why didn't that happen? I mean, let's just say for now, I don't know why it didn't happen. I mean, if I was the CDC Wuhan officer... I would say, okay, you got a new set of symptoms. Let's take 500 people. Let's look for the virus. We find it in all these people. We purify it. We find out it's not in other people. And then we give it to an animal and see what happens. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Tom, has this process that you've been describing, which is sounding like the legitimate way to determine what's going on with a potential pandemic, Uh, Has this been done with other viruses of recent years about which there was, you know, to a lesser degree, but also some media hype and precautions taken, uh, you know, around the world at the suggestion of the the, the medical industrial complex? In other words, like, is is this the worst case of that apparently not being done? Or is this kind of common that sometimes something will break out and protocols like you're describing are not followed and therefore it remains nebulous and obscure. They always do this. Oh, shoot. Okay. Okay. And in fact, this isn't even new. So I could go back and, by the way, um, there's a couple books that people need to read. Um, and and because I, I'm not somebody who's going to quote like references here, but I will give you the name of a book. It's called Virus Mania. I have it here. It's written by Torsten Engelbrecht and Klaus Kohnlein, who I've met. And I think you can get it on Amazon. And all the references for what I'm saying will, are in that book. So if you say, if somebody says there's no peer-reviewed studies on this, there are. I'm not going to give you the citations now because it's boring. They're all in that book. Now, this, this nonsense, I would say, started even with polio in 1900. So Here we had a situation where there was apparently a new disease. It happened to coincide with the widespread uh, spraying of the trees with something called lead arsenic. And the the place in our body that there's pathology, in other words, the place that's sick, is called the anterior horn cells of the nervous system. These are the cells, the nerve cells that make motor function happen. So that's why people with polio got paralyzed. It turns out that lead arsenic is a specific toxin for the anterior horn cells of the nervous system. But even then, people were determined to say, this is a transmissible agent. They didn't really know about viruses then, but they couldn't find anything under the microscope. So they decided to take samples from people who are sick with polio So they would, for instance, get a child and they would do a dissection and take the anterior horn cells of their nervous system, right? That's the part that's sick. And they would take a piece of that, 
mix it with some water and maybe some other things. And they would give it to animals and they didn't get sick. Then they would inject it into animals and they didn't get sick. They did this hundreds and thousands of times and they could not get the animals sick. And then they decided to take this one child who had paralysis, they took a piece of their nervous system, uh, ground it up, put it in water, took two, two monkeys, drilled a hole in their head, and they didn't purify it, they didn't take any virus or anything, they just took unpurified stuff from the sick nervous system, injected about half a cup into the monkey's brain, and one of the monkeys died and the other got paralyzed and they showed the monkey and they said, that's proof that it's a virus. Now, Whoa. I don't know about you, but <laughs> first of all, right, what the hell? Like, are you serious? That, that's, I would say my interpretation of that is if I was a monkey, don't let somebody drill a hole in my head and don't put somebody's diseased spinal cord in my brain. Because God knows what's going to happen. And there's no, there's, there, there was no evidence that that was a transmissible illness. How do you know it's not arsenic? How do you know it's not, there was something in the spine that was poisoned? How do you know monkeys don't like having a quarter cup of goop, you know, injected in their brain? Anyways, believe it or not, that's the, the definitive proof that polio was a transmissible disease. And as I like to say, it went downhill from there. Wow, that's now, unbelievable. It's I mean, unbelievable. I've, I've heard some, I've heard some crazy shit doing this show. <laughs> Trust me, I've interviewed some brilliant people that have a lot of alternative information that's not. I mean, it's available, but it's not widely discussed. Let's just say that, and uh, that has got to be one of the top bits of info I've ever heard. So congratulations on freaking me out big time. So let, let's get back to the current situation then. So okay. nobody, there's not a, a clear set of symptoms, right? There's a, a nonspecific fever and cough. There's no purification of, and identification of viremia, which means virus in the blood, millions of copies in anybody, at least that I know. There's no confirmation that no normal person has that, and they can't transmit it to an, an, another animal. So you could say then, so what is this based on? What, and what is this test that's confirming that people have coronavirus? Now, I talk to a lot of people now, and they say, yeah, but Tom, they did a test, and they said it was coronavirus. And they're talking about the test, and they did a test. And then I ask them, you know what they were testing? And they say, well, they're mucus. I mean, right, that's what they were testing. But what was the test? Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but my guess is you don't know what kind of test they did. Of course not. Right. So, no clue. What, you, right. Most people don't. So let me tell you about the test. It's called an RT-PCR test. And I'll tell you what that means in a minute. But the most important thing to understand about that test is it's what's called a surrogate test. And a surrogate test means that if you, if you find a gold standard, and the gold standard is what I just described, then 
you can take a piece of that genetic material of that specific microorganism, the bacteria or the virus that you found, and you can do some manipulations of it, which I'll describe in a minute. And then you can find out if, if that piece of unique genetic material is, was in that sample, and it's much quicker. Now, the way to understand this, because I like to talk in analogies and to help people really see what I'm talking about, because this is crucial. So here's what a surrogate test is. Let's say you want to uh, find out how many feet there are in a small town in Texas. And I, I don't mean inches feet. I mean feet you walk on, right? Okay. Right? So you go to Lubbock, Texas. How many, how many feet are there in Lubbock, Texas? Anybody would say the way to find that out is to get all the people in Lubbock, Texas and count their feet, right? So then you got 3,120 feet. And then you go to the next town. And that's, I don't know what it's called in Elmarillo or something like that. And there's 4,284 feet. And that's the gold standard. In other words, you're 100% sure as long as you got all the people in that town and you counted their feet, that's the number of feet there are in that town. You with me? Yep. Now, you go to the next town and that took too long and you don't want to bother with that. So you say, I'm going to use a surrogate test. I don't want to count the feet. That takes too long. I'm going to say, everybody with a foot has a shoe. And everybody who has a shoe has a shoelace. And every shoelace was bought at the one shoe store in this town. So all I have to do to find out how many feet there are is go to the store and say, how many shoelaces did you sell last year? And they say 2,000. So you say, that's the number of feet. The problem is, there's two problems. A, if you haven't correlated that that um, number of shoes equal, shoelaces equals the number of feet, you could be way off. So for instance, there may be somebody who doesn't have any shoes. Or I've heard sometimes women have 10 pairs of shoes. And I've heard that there are shoes, I even have a pair that doesn't have shoelaces. So it's very obvious that a surrogate test, if you don't haven't 100% correlated that with the gold standard, which is counting the feet, will, could be very misleading. So in a situation where you have not identified the virus, purified the virus, transmitted the virus, and then all you do is take an example of the virus and you take some genetic material of that virus, and then you have to do something called uh, put it through amplification cycles. And I know this gets technical, but so you have this piece of RNA from the coronavirus. It's a unique piece, they say, right? So if it's one copy in the blood, you can't find it. It's too small. So you put it through a cycle. And that, this, this amplification cycle, otherwise known as viral load or PCR test, was invented by Carrie Mullis, who was given the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for inventing this test. He said, you cannot use this for diagnostic purposes. You can only use it to follow the course of somebody's treatment. Because if you don't have a gold standard, 
you don't know what you're comparing it to, right? Right. So you take the DNA, the RNA, the RT part means you convert it into DNA, and then you make it one copy become two copies, and you still can't see it. Two becomes four, four becomes eight. After 30, a million becomes 2 million, 10 million becomes 20 million. And at, after 36 cycles, you start to see it. In other words, it, you, you find something that binds with that, and then you, it changes the color, right? Now, at that point, you see the color change. But at 36 cycles, you still don't catch it all because you haven't put it through enough cycles. So you put it through 37 cycles. And then you catch most of it. Got with me? Yeah. And then you put it through 40 cycles and you start catching all of it, except then you start getting false positives. In other words, some people, because there's turns out there's always a little bit of that RNA in everybody's blood, apparently. And if you put it through 60 cycles, everybody is positive. Now, let me say that again. Because 30 to 36 to 40 is the sweet spot. 36 is too low. 40, too many positives. There are false positives, even though you actually don't know which are false positives because you never counted their shoe, their feet. So you don't really know how many shoelaces go with the feet. Uh, I know this gets complicated, but it means that everybody has that little piece of DNA if you accentuate it enough. Now, the problem with this is if you do, let's say all biological tests have a, depend, I mean, it depends. It has at least a 1% false positive rate. In other words, it's set, the test is positive, but you don't really have the, the, the virus or the bacteria. If you test 30 million people and it has a 1% false positive rate, you have 300,000 people who test positive and you've got an epidemic. And then if you give them X drug, and then you, you want to demonstrate that X drug works, all you do is turn the cycles down to 37, and only 1,000 people will test positive. So, so you've cured the epidemic. That's weird. Because That's very weird. you didn't really do anything except change the number of amplification cycles. Now, it turns out, all of these diseases, SARS, Ebola, Zika, you know, Hep C, et cetera, have all been diagnosed with these PCR tests where it says in the package insert, you cannot use these for diagnostic purposes, which is bizarre because one could ask the question, well, what are you supposed to use it for? Uh, anyways, Carrie Mullis insisted that, you, that this test is an inappropriate use to diagnose somebody with that disease, particularly if you've never done those four steps. So that is the test that they're using, sorry, to diagnose that this is, this is a viral epidemic. And because they've never done the original Koch's postulates, there's no way to know how many are real positive, how many are negative. And the whole thing is, is frankly, a bit nuts. Uh, yeah, it sounds like that 
that methodology that you just described is nuts for, and I'm just going <laughs> to state what might be obvious here. It's nuts for everyone except someone who's coming up with the treatment or, or the vaccine. Or, right. Or, right. Or the test. Or the test itself. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, I always say, I hope nobody believes me about anything, but go and ask your doctor, ask the CDC, what are the tests you're using? What is the false positive rate? What is the false negative rate? What are you comparing this to? We, we understand that viral loads, it sounds like you're testing the number of viruses in the blood, but that it's nowhere near that. You're testing a piece of DNA or RNA. So, you know, it could be either depending on what you're looking for in the blood. That's not a virus. Now, l- let me just stop there for a minute. So, that's the, the place to start on this, to say, actually, what is happening here, right? Now, the next question is, so, but yes, they, people say, Tom, but there's a lot of people being sick and a lot of people have evidence of, on this PCR test that there's this new sequence. What do I make of that, right? That's the next question. So again, just because it's my habit, I'm going to speak an analogy here. Because I would say that the first thing, and, and it's also people set, tend to get angry at me or, you know, well, if it isn't the virus, then what is it? They say, right? What is it? So I would just, the first thing I would say is, imagine you, you know, Lubbock, Texas. I don't know why I'm picking on Lubbock, Texas. You, every morning you go running around the track right? Because you like to run. And the middle of the track is grass, like most football fields. Every day you go running 8 a.m. One day you go there at 8 a.m. And there's this four-story boulder, half of the football field lying on the grass. And the grass underneath is perfectly normal, right? And then you hear on the news, a meteor fell from the sky and landed in the football field in Lubbock, Texas. And it's all over the news. Oh my God, a meteor fell. And you were the only one who saw it. And if it was me, the thing that I would say to myself is, hey, wait a minute. If it fell from the sky, the grass wouldn't be normal, right? There'd be a big hole there and the grass would be all messed up. And that just doesn't make any sense. So that's why I meant this, that story of this virus it's, it doesn't make any sense. At least it hasn't been proven. Now, somebody then could say to me, Tom, well, wh- if it didn't fall from the sky, how did it get there? And my first response would be, I don't know. I just showed up in the morning and there it was. I don't know. Maybe somebody put it there or I don't know why they would put it there, but somehow it got there. Um, so that's the problem. You can't prove that I'm wrong or even suggest just because I don't know what happened. Now, I am going to say what I think is happening here, but I just want to be clear that the first thing I know is that meteor didn't fall from the sky because that that doesn't add up. This has not been proven that there's a viral causation in the generally accepted 100 years or so of how we prove a viral virus causes disease. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. 
something I've covered a lot on this show is the dangers of EMF and how to protect yourself while staying sane. Now, we all know that we're surrounded by cell signals, by Wi-Fi. We've got our laptop, our tablets, our phones nearby. And there's two areas of your body that are most susceptible to radiation. Guess what they are? Well, your thin skull with your brain inside that, of course, essentially runs your whole body. And then your reproductive organs located from the waist down. You know what I'm saying? Enter my friends over at Lambs. You can go to getlambs.com, get the most well-made, comfortable, completely normal, and cool-looking radiation-proof underwear. Now, right now, at the time of this recording, they've got a men's line. I'm sure if you're a woman, you'd be quite comfortable wearing the smaller men's ones, as the case may be, although they do have a women's line coming out soon. They also make an EMF-proof beanie. So these guys are doing it right. I'm so happy that they're in existence because I'm wearing them every single day. I threw out all of my underwear. This is all I wear. It's all I will ever wear. And you'd expect that they'd be really scratchy and made of tinfoil or something like that, so you wouldn't want to wear them. But if no one told you that they were radiation-proof, you would never know. They're super soft and comfortable and just very well-made, and they do a very good job of being completely radiation-proof. So at least you know that part of your body is protected. So if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend that you do... You can go to getlambs.com, enter the code Luke to save 15% off at getlambs.com. That's getlambs.com. Get yourself over there and restock your entire underwear drawer right now. I'm deadly serious. It's such an easy switch to make and one that's going to have a huge impact on your health. Getlambs.com. And now back to the interview. Wow. And is is there anyone other than you to your awareness that's bringing what to me is are such obvious contradictions and gaps in the story to light? I mean, I'm not hearing any of this in the, obviously like in the mainstream narrative because of the panic and the motivation. Yes, there are people, there are people, they've been doing this for de- for decades and nobody pays attention. They're, they're, that's why I read Schauberger's quote, they're considered crazy people. Right. Now, if, if we may then, let's get into this. Um, and, I mean, if you want to ask another question, I, I didn't know. No, no, go ahead. This, this is all making sense. I mean, uh, I, I might just add that just from the observational point of view, when this story first started breaking, um, you know, like, like anyone, at, at first you want to take media reports to be at least somewhat true. And the media reports we first got were out of China. Um, You know, I'm always, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but it wasn't even our obviously corrupt and misguided mainstream media here. But the first reports are coming out of China and God bless the citizens of China. Obviously, I would never say anything disparaging against them, but um, based on the track record of communist China over the past 80 to 100 years, they would not be the first place I'd go for accurate information. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So it's like just the very premise of, hey, China's saying this thing's happening and this is how it's happening. We already kind of have to go, well, hang on. Really? Yeah. These, right. This is a, a regime that's responsible for upwards of 80 million deaths in the last century through their ideology and much of that being supported by the propaganda machine that they've grown so expert in perpetrating. So all of a sudden we're going, hey, yeah, whatever China says. I mean, that that to me at the outset was 
was smelly. Uh, and add to that, um, kind of what you alluded to, that the symptoms seem to be so random and you don't know how much of the footage of these symptoms is even real in terms of you have people just falling flat on their face and passing out or dying on on the leaked you know news reports, whether they be staged or not. I mean, it's just totally from the very outset has just been completely bizarre, leaving aside any of the science that you just described. I mean, just from a reporting standpoint, it's like, right. uh, what the hell is is happening right. here? Right. So it's it's terrifying and equally as intriguing to, you know, just proselytize as to what could possibly be going on before it even enters our news cycle here. And, and we have the yes. reaction to it that we've had. Um, from not only our media, but obviously government agencies, et cetera. Right. So all that, yeah, and, and that's the sort of politics, which, you know, I'm at this point trying to stick to, you know, <laughs> like my, my, my contribution is, is, is basically medicine and facts, I sure. think. Sure. Now, let me just point out another thing. People often say to me, yeah, but there's all these people sort of dying in one place. Therefore, it must be a virus, right? I hear that a lot. And all I would just point out, you know, back in the mid-40, 45, I think it was, they dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. And a lot of people died in one place. And that wasn't a virus. And you say, well, yeah, but they saw that, right? Okay, but if you go, you know, 50 miles away from the town, they didn't see anything. And they were dying of this new disease called uh, nuclear weapons. And same with Chernobyl. You know, it started and they didn't necessarily see anything. I think they saw a bomb or a flash. But it isn't a proof of infectious etiology because a lot of people die. Nor is it a proof of infectious etiology because they're all in the same family. You know, if I put cyanide in your water, a lot of people in your house will die. And that's not because they have a virus. So that's not the proof. Now, we then get into, so what is a virus in the first place? And, you know, why are they fingering viruses for this? So a virus is a piece of DNA or RNA, which is the genetic material. You know, DNA makes RNA, makes proteins. I won't get into so much, but it's a piece of DNA or RNA with a few other proteins that then gets, uh, it has to live inside a cell. And so it replicates so-called in a cell and then buds out through the cell membrane and gets spewed out into the world. That's what a virus is. Now, it used to be, we didn't think, you know, back when I was in medical school, so this isn't like, I'm not that old, I mean, old, but not that old, we used to think there was no such thing as beneficial bacteria, right? Which we call the microbiome. Everybody knows that we're, we have more bacterial cells in our body than we do uh, human cells. But back then, we used to treat people who were sick by trying to kill all the bacteria in their body because the bacteria were making them sick. So we give them a high dose of very toxic antibiotics trying to sterilize them just so that they wouldn't get sick. And that didn't work out very well. They died. It turns out we have millions of different viruses, which are these little particles of genetic material inserted in our DNA 
in our cells and everywhere else, in your eyelids, in your nose, in your blood, everywhere, there's all these viruses. When something stimulates them to start, uh, I wouldn't use the word growing because they're not alive. Something stimulates your body to produce more of these uh, genetic sequences. They then get packaged up into your cell membranes and excreted. Now, the interesting thing about this is if you do something to degrade somebody's DNA, in other words, if you put a, an agent in there that's toxic to the DNA, you will, get, you will produce these DNA pieces or RNA pieces. It depends how you do it. They will get packaged up, and those are called exosomes, which are, look like viruses. And then the question is, did this virus, these chickenpox million viruses, was that came from the outside? Or was that produced by your own sequence in the inside because of some reason? Now, I would make the analogy that what could be the reason? Well, it could be that it's getting rid of toxins. In other words, if you poison the cell, you degrade the DNA, it packages them up and sends them out. And that's what we call, so the person is sick, right? Because they've been poisoned. And then they package it up. And we think they have a viral infection when they're actually just getting rid of poisons. Now, for those of you who say, well, Tom, he just makes this stuff up. I mean, I do make stuff up, but not this kind of stuff. Um, I would say go to a lecture given by one of the top virologists in the world. His name is Dr. Skip Virgin. It was given at the NIH June 4, 2005. The title is called The Mammalian Virome in Genetic Analysis of Health and Disease Pathogenesis. That's a mouthful. But if you, do, if you go to YouTube, you can find it. And he says essentially something very similar. Viruses are messengers. They're the rapid response team that says that this, the organism is saying, we've been poisoned. We're going to package up some genetic material and send it out to alert other cells, other tissues, other organisms, maybe even other species, that there's a problem here. Something is degrading my, my DNA, my cells. Now, the, the analogy here is this is exactly what trees do. If you have beetles eating a tree then the one tree who's the first one to be eaten by beetles will make chemicals, which they package up, send it out through the roots. Those go and tell the other trees to make an immunological reaction so that they can fend off the beetles. In other words, this whole idea that there's some survival of the fittest or the sort of wily virus theory, you know, the wily virus is escaping detection. And I always ask people then, so it's a capsule that comes from your cell. It's a piece of RNA or DNA and a few proteins, which is actually the wily part of that. Like the part that's thinking, I'm going to escape detection and survive on my own. That is a antiquated, ridiculous concept. These are messengers and toxins excreted from the cell. And then here's where it gets interesting. 
they, they, they're then put out into the world as if there's a problem here, people, right? Now, that's why, you know, Rudolf Steiner described viruses as essentially mineralized excrement. Now, I would, I would submit that it's not good to eat somebody's mineralized excrement, right? So if, if somebody has the signal that I'm being poisoned and they, they send out the message through this rapid response team, which is called viruses, and that goes to you, and then you make a reaction to defend yourself, you think you got sick from that person. And it's very, that's why it's complicated. It seems like you have an infection, but you don't, that's not really an infection. In other words, the cause of that was not an infection. It was a, actually a beneficial reminder that something is happening here which we don't like. Now, it's, it's like I describe with people uh, in, in thinking about medicine. So here you are and you get a splinter in your finger and you don't take it out. And then what happens is you make pus, right? Is the pus the disease or is the pus the therapy for the splinter? Everybody says the pus is the therapy for the splinter. The splinter is the disease. And you could say, well, yeah, but the pus could eat your finger and then get into your blood and kill you. Right. Sometimes your therapy or your response to an insult can get you into trouble. I get it. But it still doesn't mean it's not the response. And everybody says, well, no, that's stupid because nobody, everybody knows that. But how about this? People put debris in their lungs. It's called smoking. And then twice a year, they get mucus and cough to get it out of their lungs. And then they go to the doctor and doctor says, you have bronchitis. And he gives you a medicine to stop you from coughing. And I would only ask, what happens to the smoke? <laughs> it stays there. And then you do it for twice a year for 20 years. And then you get lung cancer. Now, I, I know this is a little simplistic, but why did you get lung cancer? Because you put crap in your lungs and somebody stopped you from getting the crap out of your lungs. And then it builds up and you get lung cancer. So it's true that, that you know, being exposed to somebody's signal creates a reaction in you. Oh, I have to defend myself. The part that we call being sick is the defending yourself. Sometimes it gets too much, especially if there's multiple toxins in the, in the, that are causing this. Like It doesn't necessarily always have to be a splinter or smoking. You could put arsenic in your lungs. You could breathe in pig poop or you know, lots of things can, can make you have that immunological reaction. So it gets complicated. So once you go there, then you can say the question, which is what you started this whole conversation with. So what do I think about 5G? So all I'm saying then is if, if this modern theory of virology is accurate, which is what the real top virologists in the world are saying, uh, it, then we have to look for something that's poisoning these people. Now. Let's just say, just to be clear, I don't necessarily know what's poisoning them. 
right? I just know that the boulder fell up from the sky. I don't believe that's true because the grass is fine. That's the main point. Now, if we want me to speculate on what may be getting people sick now, I would say, well, something is degrading their DNA. So what could that be? Well, if you look at uh, Wuhan and Northern Italy, I think it's Northern Italy, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, where the people are getting sick, there's some interesting things that are happening. Now, let me just be clear about this. I'm getting these from eyewitness sources and from reading and from studies. And it could be that they're not accurate. You know, it's hard to know this. But what I understand is, A, those are two of the most polluted places on Earth. That they have industrial toxins galore in the, in the air that the people are breathing. Number two, they both embarked on hyperimmunization campaigns in the months leading up to this, where they put basically metals into their body, like aluminum. From vaccinations? From, from vaccinations. And, yeah. And, and that, that plays into it because of the following. So there's, there's pollution, there's older population, there's a vaccination, there's stuff in the air that's probably not good. And these people are exposed to metallic poisons. Now, when you, so then you introduce, and my, you know, sources say, so they introduced 5G in Wuhan. So what does that do? Well, it does two things. It's sort of, I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an electrician or an EMF expert. So nobody should take me as that. Got it. And for the record, for those that are interested in hearing someone whose specialty is that, I've done a lot of episodes with people that yes. are, are very knowledgeable about all of the various types of EMF, uh, including the various frequencies of RF, like 3G, 4G, and 5G. Yes. So, well, you know, the, the, anyone that's listened to my show before knows that I cover this a lot because I'm very concerned about it. Um, right. So that's, you know, the caveat is welcomed and people can go find more information on that too. Right. So, but let's take two things that I, that I, I'm hearing a lot about. One is that somehow these new frequencies um, inter, they're absorbed or interfered with or something to the oxygen in the air. It degrades the oxygen in the air. It makes it less bioavailable. Um, the other thing is all of radio frequencies uh, are, are increased absorbed into your body the more metals you have in your body. The metals act as antennas. And I can tell you in my practice, in my career, I, I really didn't want to get involved with EMFs because then it's like, what do you do? And it's just a pain in the ass. Uh, until eventually I get, had a guy came in, he had, you know, cardiac arrhythmias, he was exhausted, couldn't get out of bed, his life was, was a mess. And so I got the history, he, he works up putting in, you know, high intensity EMF systems, Wi-Fi in very rich people's houses. That's oh, what he brutal. does. But brutal. he did that for years and he was fine. And then he had a, he's a, he's a surfer fell off his surfboard, broke his arm. They put a metal plate in his, in his arm. Next thing you know, two weeks later, he can't get out of bed. Two years later, he can't get out of bed. And it, it just hit me then that he became an antenna. And he was in a very toxic work environment, but it, he, could, he was resistant to it. And then um, 
he he became an antenna because of what happened to him, and then he couldn't get out of bed. So that really got me thinking about this. The next thing I found out was that basically, if if you know structured water, I won't have to go into the whole thing, but all these radio frequencies are absorbed into the water and destructure it. Now, I happen to know, because I wrote a book on cancer and the new biology of water, which basically says, you know, the the destructuring of water is the, is the cause of cancer. And for anybody just who doesn't believe me, A, read my book, but B, that what the main tool we use called an MRI device, right? Everybody knows MRI, you hurt your shoulder, you do an MRI. If we have a tumor, they want to know if it's real, they do an MRI. If you say to your doctor or to you, do you know what an MRI measures? Is it deuterium? No. Okay. It yeah. measures the... I was hoping re- I'd get that one right. <laughs> yeah, you didn't. It measures the relaxation phase of the water in your cell. Oh. which is a measurement of how structured the water is in your cell. It was, it was a invention inspired by a guy named Gilbert Ritling, who was the, credit, he was the mentor of Jerry Pollack, who discovered easy water. Wow. And basically, he, it was his discovery that all the water in the cell is structured. When the structure deteriorates, then that shows up on this signal, which is integrated by the software in very complicated ways. And that shows up as a picture on the screen. And that's what we call a tumor. And it turns out that this structured water basically does everything in the cell, including it is the, the DNA in the nucleus, this genetic material, which are viruses, right? That's what a virus is, a little piece of DNA. The DNA is embedded in a in a encasement of structured water. Now there will be people out there who say, "How do I know that? I have references for that. I can't say them off the top of my head, but I wrote about it in my book, and all the references are in there. So if you don't, please don't email me and say, "Give me the reference. It's in the book." So and for that matter, don't email me either. It's in the show notes. His book is in the show notes, so I'll take it one further. Yeah. Right. So. So here's, here's my hypothesis of what's happening here. You basically have metallic toxins that people are breathing into their lungs. They've also been injected with metallic toxins. Both of these tend to degrade the water and serve as antenna for new electromagnetic fields. Then you introduce the spark, which is a new electromagnetic field, this new radio frequency, and that degrades the water that the DNA is embedded in, or the RNA, that sends off a novel piece of DNA because they've never been exposed to that frequency before. That the cell sees as, oh, this is a new piece. We better send out messages to all the other people and all the animals that there's a new toxin in town and so that they can defend themselves. And that's what we call this coronavirus. Wow. And then the people have, A, they have an immunological reaction, sometimes an excessive one. But meanwhile, why does it happen in the lungs? Because their oxygen has been degraded, which will always end up with forming these these injuries to their lungs. And so that feeds on the problem. So it ends up showing up in the lungs. 
and they have bleeding because like uh, Martin Paul has described, which may or may not be true, but the, the 5G signal pushes the calcium into the cell. So the calcium gets low in the blood. Calcium in the blood is part of the so-called clotting or coagulation pathway. So then you can't clot your blood. So you fall over dead because you have a hemorrhage. And you wow. have hemorrhages in your wow. lungs, which is exactly what we're seeing. And so, you know, is that, is, can I prove that with peer-reviewed literature? I mean, a lot of the steps, yes, but nobody has said, here's what's happening now. Now, then you say, well, what about places that supposedly don't have 5G? So it also could be different in different places. There could be different biological toxins. Remember, this is not a specific syndrome. There's no specific virus ever been isolated from anybody. There's no proof that normal people don't have, do, do or don't have this virus, and they've never transmitted it. Therefore, we have no, we've never counted the people's feet. So we don't know. <laughs> oh, man. And, and is, so that's oh, the problem. Crazy. And so there could be different frequencies or it could be that they're satellites. I mean, some people tell me they haven't started the satellites. Some people tell me they have. Uh, once you send out a signal, it probably blankets the earth to a certain extent. So that's why you see this sort of spreading. And anyways, there is a transmission part of this, right? There's a signal. Uh, and, and I sort of would finish with um, one of the things I said, and then I'll just sort of shut up here and answer try is the, the way already, i see the hey, by the way you've already answered like the first 10 of my questions so we're we're doing great your your esp is working perfectly the the way i put it is if you're a dolphin doctor right world famous dolphin doctor and you you know this all the dolphins in the galapagos or whatever you call it islands they've always been fine You've been studying for decades. And then somehow some of the dolphins are dying, you know, like 10%. And they call you up and they say, Luke, come down here, take a look at these dolphins. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I'm going to give you a multiple choice. You only get one question to ask them, okay? Here's the three choices. One, do the dolphins have a genetic disease? Two, do the dolphins have a, have a virus? Three, did somebody put some stuff in the water which isn't good for the dolphins? Three. Three. 100% of the people say three, except apparently doctors. Except the CDC. <laughs> somebody put some stuff in the water. That, that's Exxon Valdez. It kills the whales. Right. They excrete toxins, which quite possibly are messengers that we confuse as viruses. Here's another story. This is a true story. When I was growing up in suburban Detroit, there was a wetlands across the street from my house, from my window. And there was frogs in the wetlands and they made a horrible racket. And I was a light sleeper, so I couldn't sleep well. I take the windows and everything and it didn't work. And then when I was around eight or nine, the, the frog croaking went, went away. All the frogs were dead. Again, three choices. The frogs had a genetic disease, the frogs had a virus, 
or somebody put DDT in the water. DDT in the water. That's what happened. So I don't know why we tend, you see, the thing that I'm worried about, like what you said in the beginning, is I, I can't really tell how bad this is. You know, people send me reports that the excess mortality rate is nothing. And then other people say they're going to kill, you know, 10% of the population. I, I don't really know. Let's just say, I don't know which of those. But, I, but my, my worry is somebody put some shit in our water and there's not a single drop of food or water or air or, you know, that's actually toxin-free these days. And they just cranked up the volume. And that's not a good thing because when you crank up the volume of a technology which is known to degrade DNA, which is after all what viruses are, then you might see people expressing these viruses and getting really sick. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I think I can... Stop there, and I know I've talked your ear off, and no, I apologize. I'm but, eating it up. Don't don't apologize. This is this is exactly uh, what I wanted to be talking about. Now, I I want to know if you might know you know as much or or, or more about this particular uh, statistic. But I have been um, seeing some things online that I I can't cite exactly, but that there have been correlations over the course of history, I guess, post-industrial revolution, specifically that each time there's a new amplification of the electrification of our societies, that there's a rollout of a new pandemic. So in 1890, yes. whatever, people got, you know, all of a sudden there was widespread illness. Then at the advent of radar in World War One, It was uh, actually bunch- radi- radio waves in World War One. Radio and waves. In, in fact, I made a mistake on a, it was a typo. I wrote something that said radar was rolled out in World War I, which is not true. It okay. was the advent of the radio waveification. <laughs> That's not quite the right word, but you know what I mean. The well, radio well, wave blanketing of the earth. And interesting, Rudolf Steiner at the, in 1918 said, the world is blanketed with these unseen electrical forces and the repercussion of that is it makes it Hard to be a human being. Wow. And then we go on to radar and then a new pandemic. And then I don't know exactly which one in 68 was then the, the Hong Kong flu. And if anybody wants to do to read about that, and again, unless you've read Arthur Furstenberg's The Invisible Rainbow, where he documents this and gives references, please don't email me and say, I was wrong about radio waves and a radar, and I, I right. I made a typo in the thing. It was ra- radio waves in 1918. Got it. And if you haven't read that, don't ask me for references. Can you name that? All in the. Can you name that book again, Tom? For our show it's notes, called "The Invisible Rainbow" by Arthur Furstenberg. And in the Invisible Rainbow, he describes this span of time in which uh, it's been uh, punctuated by these developments in technology and that they've responded with pandemics resulting from that expansion. Exactly. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of, of correlation, you know, because when when you can't find the causation, well, the next logical step is correlation. Like what happened also, just like your example of the frogs out in the marsh uh, and the, the DDT, uh, we're unable to, as a species, to really be, uh, you know, to zoom out of a, an issue when we're in the middle of it. We seem to only be able to do it in hindsight. And I think that's one of the things I really like doing on the show is, Rather than us having to wait 20 years and looking back on coronavirus and what might have happened, let's look at it from a different point of view right now and try and you know zoom out a bit and not just take the information we're getting at face value, obviously, um, also due to the fact that the information is so obviously skewed, especially the information coming out of China. <laughs> Like as if the American media could be even worse, <laughs> you know. Like imagine that. It's like, well, yeah, it's even worse, exponentially worse in China. It's a communist country. I mean, hello, you know. I think a lot of people that don't, and and I'm not even a history buff, but I know enough to know that you know you have a totalitarian regime uh, watching their news reports and believing what they say is probably unwise. So. Uh, I, f- I find those correlations really, really interesting, and I'm glad there's a book about it because I actually, you know, get some more to speculate less and actually get some historical. Yeah, I mean, all the references are there, and even the mechanism. You know, again, that you increase electrification that pushes the calcium into the cell. The cal- calcium goes low. People die of hemorrhage which is exactly what they said they were dying of in World War in the Spanish flu. It was also, by the way, and you see, it, it doesn't necessarily help to always be simplistic about this. Like it was also the advent of aspirin, which is a blood thinner, right? And people were taking 30 to 40 aspirins a day because it was the wonder drug to treat the Spanish flu. So at the same time, they were pushing the calcium into the cell lowering the calcium in the blood, which makes you bleed. And they were being told to take up to 30 to 40 different aspirins a day, which whose side effect is bleeding. And they report that the number one cause of death was spontaneous hemorrhage. And the best treatment in the Spanish flu time was intravenous calcium lactate. And oh, wow. that makes no sense except through that story. You know, you did something which we have very clear documentation affects the calcium level, the ionized calcium in the blood. That causes clotting. You give somebody a blood thinner to make them bleed even more, and then they bleed. I mean, no. Something, yeah. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to put those uh, pieces together. Uh, Something that's interesting going further into the the metals issue uh, that I've always wondered about. And on the more conspiratorial side, there are some people talking about this with the, um, you know, widespread geoengineering and the metal particulate that's in the air. And, uh, you know, one can only assume ending up in our lungs and water and food supply, um, in addition to the heavy metals and pesticides and just all of the metal particulate that a human body tends to take in over time. And vaccines. And in, yeah, and as you said, in the vaccines, I did get some information about, and again, some of these things are like, oh, I heard from so-and-so that heard from so-and-so. Right. So, you know, any meme you see online can't be taken as fact, just like mainstream media can't be taken at right. face value. I think alternative media needs to be held up to the same scrutiny. But 
right. there is some indication that as as you were uh, saying earlier that uh, Wuhan is also just full of Roundup and it, it's yes. one of the most toxic pesticide laden places on the planet. So this might be really one of those perfect storm situations where you have all of these different converging elements and, and negative influences happening at once and then poof, you have an outbreak. And I guess that being the case, then you get into the, okay, well, if no one's well, really... Let, no let, let me just stop you for a minute there because okay. I have a, a very dear friend who's probably one of the three most knowledgeable glyphosate, which is the active ingredient Roundup people in the world. She's done you know, a significant part of the original research on this. And she just put out a paper saying that, um, you know, that Europe has, to a large extent, converted to biodiesel, right? So they grow corn and they use that as their fuel source, which then gets spewed into the air. Now, everybody knows that the corn that they're growing for biodiesel is not biodynamically grown corn, right? That is Roundup-ready, glyphosate-soaked corn, which then gets into the body of the corn, which is then converted into fuel, which is the, quote, green fuel of Europe. So they use biodiesel, to, which is then vaporized. In, not, vaporized may not be the right word. Uh, it, and the reason I'm trying to be clear is because then I get 50 emails <laughs> You said it was vaporized. So let's just say it's made airborne. It may, it's somehow it's burned in the engine. I'm not an engineer. I don't exactly know what happens in a combust, you know, a, what do you call it? A combustible engine or something. Combustion engine. Yeah. It, anyways, it goes into there's there's exhaust. The exhaust probably has some some glyphosate in it, which then gets breathed in the air into sorry, breathed in the air into your lungs. And then you may have damage to your lungs. Now, just let's be clear. Do I know that that's the cause of this situation? Absolutely not. But what I do know is if you give me a choice between having glyphosate in my air or not, even if I don't have a study, I choose not. So if this thing erupts as it did and we start getting news reports out of China and then they're echoed by our media and the first story we're given is that um, people are eating bat soup in Wuhan. <laughs> this is happening as a result of that. Then, you know, if, if, if there's no clear what is going on and no clear answers in terms of that, then one has to logically go to the next question, which is why and, and then furthermore, who, right? So it's like, well, who stands to benefit from creating confusion around something that is probably solvable by some means of logic as we're sort of you know, stumbling our way through here? Uh, then you look at the, the end result of said pandemic and the end result worldwide now, as we're seeing at the time of this recording, is uh, dramatic loss of civil liberties and and freedoms uh, in the interest of public safety. And I think for me, this is where it gets really confusing because I'm here in Los Angeles, you're in Northern California. And uh, right now we have, I don't even, I'm, I just don't leave the house. I'm, I love staying home. So I'm fine. You know, I have some food, have a girlfriend, cute dog sitting back here. Um, so not going out is not a problem for me. Thankfully, I do this for a living. 
But apparently there's a, you know, a kind of martial law light happening here, this uh, safe at home initiative or, or order rather. And, um, you know, now we're seeing talk uh, from people like Bill Gates about uh, microchip vaccines. And, uh, you know, there's talk of, well, we better not have cash now because, of course, cash can carry viruses. So cashless society, I mean, it's getting very Orwellian New World Order very quickly in reaction to this. And then that's, you know, and this might be beyond your area of expertise or even something you want to comment on, but my mind can't help but wonder, okay, if there's so many anomalies to this and if it's just so obviously uh, a case of the official narrative having huge holes in it, then who stands to benefit and what is this really all about? Have you looked at it from, from that point of view, from you know, well, obviously pharmaceutical companies will benefit if they magically come up with a, a vaccine for a virus that we don't even really know exists or might not even be the problem. You know, it just gets, gets real murky when you even get beyond what we're talking about. So what might you have to say about, about that side of it? Like what could possibly be going on if it's not the official story? Here's a story that's 100% true, which is really awful, right? So I can 100% guarantee this is an actual story. My wife was at the local food co-op yesterday. They have to stand in line every six feet, you know, and they only let a certain amount of people go in at a time. She comes out, um, and she gave me permission to tell this story. Um, she comes out with her bags of grocery and sees an elderly, well-dressed African-American man lying on the floor on the ground he just fell and hit his head and he was bleeding from the head and looked dazed and confused right that's the story everybody's standing in line literally nobody did or said anything they kept either looking at their phones or looking at him and nobody went to ask him how he is does he need help is can I help you up? Can I call 911? Can I find your wife? Turns out he had a wife who was back there. So my wife goes up and asks him, you know, is he okay? And can she do anything to help? She gets them to call 911, finds his wife, and they help him up. And, you know, then he goes and gets help. As a result of this, we are at serious risk of becoming non-empathetic robotic beings. And all the other things you said are really awful. And I don't know or I don't know if or how any of them are true. I suspect that you know a lot about this and, and it's probably true. But I know that this is happening. I know that people are dissociating from each other and their life is becoming on a screen. And that is an awful development in the history of humanity. And I can tell you that story is true. And it's happening all over the world. People are convinced that our fellow human beings are not to be cared about. It's okay if the dolphins die. It's okay if the daffodils die. It's okay if all the bees are gone. It's okay if the birds are gone. Because I have my cell phone and I'm okay. And that's really spooky. That is spooky. Yeah, I think 
one of the things for me that's challenging about this is uh, you want to <laughs> you want to be civil, you want to be obedient, you don't want to leave the house and you know gather in public and put people at risk because you're told that that could be risky and you you want to do the right thing. But I think what what I'm observing is that because of the media's reaction and because we're really all so unsure about exactly what's going on, that people are uh, really in a, in a hurry to give up their liberty and their freedom and their empathy. And their humanity. <laughs> you know, and their humanity. And, and if you don't have that, what's the point? Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't expect you'd necessarily have the answer to that. And I'm, I'm, I'm working on, on these answers. Um, but that's the thing about it to me that's so puzzling is, is if you, you start to uncover some of the mysterious, the origins of this, and as I said, the, the official narrative just has so many holes in it. It's like, well, what's the motive then for this? And you have to look at who benefits. And that's what leads me down. Hmm, well, there's you know more government control um, being unleashed upon us and people are being strangely obedient. And it's I think it's because uh, our... The better part of our humanity is perhaps being played on because we don't want to be the one that goes out and gets people sick and breaks right. the rules, right? So it's like it's just a really strange, strange time. Uh, but aside from that, I do want to go back to a couple of the the things just around around viruses. When you were talking about the 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 virus being a signal from our body that there's an invasion or that there's something wrong, it brought to mind uh, HIV. And then HIV turning into AIDS is does that work in a similar way? Like that same, model it's that you the described? same story. It's the, okay, and that's why that particular one also, I guess, like so many viral infections, is so mysterious and kind of yes. unsolved, and no one really knows how it all works. And it's just right. a weird. Yeah, it's the, the same whole, story. The whole viral game, all in all, is just so bizarre. They, this this rodeo has been played before. Got it. And has this been the case with? Many of the viral pandemics that we face, some of which you you mentioned earlier, Ebola, Zika, et cetera, yes. is there always kind of this yes. unsolvable mystery to them? Yes. Read Virus Mania. Virus Mania. Okay. Another great book for, for the show notes. We've talked about a lot of things here, but yeah. I, I have a possible way out for people. If okay, would, good. Let's go there then. Um, I love that. And, and this is not, I must, I, I'm going to credit um, the person who I'm going to read this from. Okay. I've talked about him before. His name is Rudolf Steiner. Yes. And he wrote this, uh, quote, verse or something that people can say on a daily basis in trying times. So I'm going to read it to you. It's called A Verse for Our Time. We must eradicate from the soul all fear and terror of what comes toward man out of the future. We must acquire serenity in all feelings and sensations about the future. We must look forward with absolute equanimity to everything that may come. And we must think that whatever comes is given to us by a world directive full of wisdom. It is part of what we must learn in this age, namely to live out of pure trust without any security in existence, trust in the ever-present help of the spiritual world. Truly, nothing else will do if our courage 
is not to fail us. And let us seek this awakening from within ourselves every morning and every evening. That's amazing. That's the way out. That's a beautiful reading. It is a way out. It's in our it's in our perception and our trust of the the greater plan that's beyond our current point of view, right? Yep. Yeah, it's funny that you that you took it to that because I did uh, I recorded a solo show a couple days ago that'll will have come out a week before your episode comes out and uh, in which I posed a lot of questions and concerns in the beginning part of it. And then I was sort of left with, well, God, this is getting a bit doom and gloom. So what's the solution? And in in a nutshell, essentially, that's what I came up with. And I think for me, it's like my my goal with speaking to you and the different people that I will inevitably be talking to about about, about the issue at hand is to try to get some semblance of of what's going on and if there yeah. is anything interpersonally or um, just in terms of the way we look at our medical system or anything uh, in the future that can be gained but at the end of the day it's like really all of this is so beyond control i can't control the yeah. 5g towers being put up in wuhan and whether or not they did anything to the poor people there or not it's it's kind of just about building awareness and i'm always walking that razor's edge between awareness and fear yeah. And within my own life. And, you know, I have a Wi Fi router here in the house and it's needed right now. <laughs> so it's like, you know, am I going to sit here and make myself sick and kill, you know, my immune system from worrying about the Wi Fi router? No, but I also want to be informed, you know. And right. so there's a fine line between uh, building awareness about some of these issues that face us and also knowing, like, hey, it's kind of a, a thing like a, a, one of my favorite phrases uh, is a uh, trust God, tie up your camel. So, yeah, people, there's help out there. You take whatever you, precautions you can. You, you, whether you know it or not, there's some yeah. there's help. Yeah, and and there is you know a master plan, uh, whether it seems so in the moment or not. So, thank you for bringing light to that because I know it's really easy for some of us to um, you know kind of go down the doomsday path, especially in light of you know not only the potential of getting ill, but just the reaction that we're seeing and right. just the unprecedented rollout of so much authoritarian behavior. It's like, whoa, these are the things we heard the conspiracy theorists talking about 20, 30 years ago. And now it's right. like, whoa, some of them were right about some of the things, you know, and that can right. be a bit Here we are. A fear doesn't really get us anywhere. So I, I thank Here. you for that. And um, I thank you for your information and uh, all the expertise that you brought to this and um, giving you know your take on it thus far, and I look forward to talking you to you again. Uh, hopefully, we can dig into something a little lighter next time, like uh, the science of water and uh, yes, and uh, the you know the Quinton minerals and all of these wonderful yeah. things that I know you and I are a fan of. Great. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tom, and uh, I look forward to speaking to you soon. Okay, thank you, Luke. I really appreciate it, uh, man. You too. Bye. Bye, bye. Well, folks, how's that red pill tasting about now? Uh, I know that you made it to the end of this conversation because you're hearing my voice right now. And in closing, I'd like to say again that I have the utmost compassion for anyone that's fallen ill or is otherwise suffering as a result of this mysterious pandemic. We really don't know what's going on, but we know that people are hurting and will likely continue to do so into the future. And so my heart uh, goes out to anyone affected. 
I'd also like to encourage everyone to keep asking the tough questions. Asking questions and thinking critically about the mainstream narrative surrounding COVID-19 does not make you a bad person or imply that you do not care about the welfare of your fellow humans. In fact, I would say exploring all avenues of truth in order to arrive at a deeper understanding of what's really going on is actually the most compassionate thing that you can do. This is the only way to find a solution to a complex dilemma such as this one. So please share this episode and any other media you find that offers an alternative insight into the current disaster in which we find ourselves. And with that, I want to thank you for the courage to entertain a different point of view and for sharing it wide and far. Next week's episode is going to be a bit of a detour from this serious conversation. It's called Mastering the Mantra, Sound, Vibration, and Kundalini Creation with the band Icona. It's a very music-centric episode and one of the utmost positivity. And so I think that's going to be a nice bookend for this episode. Not that this wasn't positive. I think you know, having a conversation about anything uh, with integrity and kindness is worth doing and is ultimately positive. But man, whew, some of us truly need uh, a way to elevate our consciousness when so much negativity surrounds us. And next week's episode is sure to provide that. And in order to stay connected to all of you, my lovely girlfriend, Allison Charles, and I will be doing some guided meditations and online programs uh, coming up soon on April 20th and April 24th. You can find the details and logins for those, as well as the rescheduled dates for all of my upcoming speaking engagements at lukestory.com forward slash events. That's lukestory.com forward slash events for the upcoming live streams, April 20th and April 24th. And uh, you know what, man? Let's go ahead and just thank our sponsors as we bring this thing to a close because honestly, uh, we can't do this without them. Uh, the first one being Juve. That's J-O-O-V-V.com forward slash Luke. Juve.com forward slash Luke for some red light therapy. Then we've got Cured Nutrition. That's curednutrition.com. The code there is lifestylist, and that saves you 15% off. Cured makes some amazing different CBD, medicinal mushroom, and herbal products. They are freaking awesome. There's one in the morning called Rise I love, and there's another one they make at night for sleep that I ran out of so fast. I can't remember the name right now, but they are awesome, and that's curednutrition.com. And finally, let's give a shout out to our third sponsor, getlambs.com. And with that, I will thank you again for joining me. And I can't wait to keep delivering thought-provoking, heart-opening information to you. So make sure you subscribe to this show so you don't miss next week's episode or any others to follow. God bless. Take care of yourself out there and keep your head up.